morning. My name is Wade. I'm one of the pastors here. Our text is from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This is in your bulletin, the first five verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This is Paul speaking. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of of God. This is the Word of God. I subscribed to Time Magazine and I got an issue a few months ago. It was the 100 Most Influential People. And it, throughout the pages were, were all these famous, really influential people. Uh, some of the names you might recognize, Bob Iger, who is the CEO of Disney. He's the guy that gave us the Avengers movies, LeBron James, Taylor Swift. Uh, no? <laughs> I'm not a fan. Benjamin Netanyahu, AOC, the politician, Alex Morgan, the soccer player, Joanna and Chip Gaines, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, and, more, all, and so many people that, that you might recognize. And as I read through this issue, it, it's, it's basically a bunch of really well-known people writing about these other well-known people, talking about how great they are. Uh, these are people that are powerful, they're beautiful, they're smart, they're articulate and charismatic. And this is how they ended up on the list of the 100 most influential people of 2019. Now, have you ever wondered what it would be like to be such a person. Would you want to be one of these people with all this fame, possibly fortune, definitely influence and respect? Would you want to be one of these people? Or maybe if you're thinking in some Christian context, maybe we can ask this. What's the intersection of qualities of the person that makes it to the list of the 100 most influential people and the person who wants to carry out the mission of Jesus. What are the qualities between these two groups of people that, that intersect? Or let me put it in the context of our church. The vision of our church is to follow Jesus and help others follow Jesus. So what type of person do you have to be in order to do what we want as a church? What type of person do we need to be? What type of characteristics do we have to have in order to carry out the mission of IGC? Uh, I've been doing this for a few years now, and I've, I've, I sometimes think of this. Uh, what's my church dream team? Like, who are the people that I want to gather in order to build this really great church? So uh, you could think about this as well. Probably on that list is the most charismatic visionary pastor that you can think of. We want the most intelligent and articulate Sunday school teacher. We want the most fun and experienced children's director. We want the most skilled musicians. We want the wisest counselors. We want the most savvy finance team. We want the most outgoing and inviting people as part of our outreach team. We want the most organized logistics team. What if we had this? 
What if IGC had all these things? Can you imagine how many people would we reach? How well-respected would our church be in the East Bay if we had all these things? And yet, as we look at this text in 1 Corinthians, this is nothing like what the church should look like according to God. In our time together this morning, I I want us to consider what we're called to be as a church. This is what we've been thinking about this summer What are we to be as a church? What should our ministry look like? And not just us as a collective whole, but for us personally, what are we to be if we want IGC to be a church that honors God? So we read the passage today. This is set against the backdrop of values and expectations of the Corinthian culture. As we've gone through the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, we've learned that the Corinthians, these Corinthian believers, they live in a place where really sophisticated speech was valued, rhetoric and style. These were things that the people of Corinth prized, not just the culture, but even those within the church. And these are orators, rhetoricians, speakers. These are people who could convince you to buy into their version Their explanation of reality. This is wisdom, the wisdom that Paul speaks of. These are the people that the Corinthians paid attention to. These are the people that if they, if Time Magazine existed 2,000 years ago, they would have made it to the list of the 100 most influential people of the first century. And Paul has made it clear as he goes through the first chapter that the church should have different values from that of the surrounding culture. Paul, he speaks of the foolishness of the word of the cross. If you remember that, he speaks of the weakness of God being stronger than men. And a few weeks ago, we looked at verses 26 through 29 of 1 Corinthians 1. Let me read that to you just to refresh our memories. This is Paul speaking of those in the church. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so, things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. What's he saying here? He's basically telling the church, you guys are nobodies. People don't respect you. And yet God chose you to be here. Not only were you not wise or powerful, or of noble birth, he says, but neither am I. I'm not these things either. So Paul, as he goes through these verses in today's passage, he lists the ways in which he wouldn't fit into Corinthian culture. He doesn't come with the rhetorical tools. He's not armed with clever knowledge about the world or philosophy. He comes, he says he's fearful, he's weak, he's even trembling. Can you imagine Someone that's scared? Would you listen to him? Probably not. And the apostle says, this is who, how I came to you. And he doesn't apologize for this. In fact, Paul says that this understanding he has of himself is necessary for the mission of Jesus to be carried out. Now, if, if you've ever sat down with me and uh, asked me about the history of IGC, um, you've probably heard in my reply something like this that most church plants die within five years. And what amazes me, and I 
I really mean this even now. What amazes me is that we're still around. We're still around. And what amazes me is this, that I, when I was in Southern California, I was around all these church planters and uh, hopeful church planters. I was around all these mega churches. And what did IGC have when we started? We had really good teaching from Pastor Michael. We had a good sense of community. Um, but I don't know if that would sustain a church for all these years. We have so many areas that need improvements. And by the grace of God, I hope that they'll improve in time. But God has sustained us, not because we have charismatic leaders, not because we have uh, visionaries, not because we have the most organized team, although I'm so grateful for everyone that has served here. I think the reason why we're still around is because God has sustained us over time because we try as faithfully as we can to preach the gospel, the testimony of God, which Paul mentions in today's passage. We don't have the most impressive leaders or resources, but what do we have? We have a message. We have the gospel message. We have the word of the cross. We don't have... We don't have to try to be impressive because we have the gospel and that's enough. And in our time together, I want us to be convinced that this is all that we need. The title of our sermon is Faith That Rests in the Power of God. And I want us to understand that our faith has found a resting place. That we don't have to try to be something that we are not. We don't have to try to look cool in this neighborhood. But God has given us all that we need to carry out his mission. So to, to do that, I have a three points today in your bulletin. Number one is knowing one thing, a singular thing. Number two, weakness and fear and trembling. And number three, the power of God. And as we go through these, these uh, points, I want us to think about, all right, who are we as a church? What are we to do? So the first point knowing one thing. So Paul reminds the Corinthian church that when he first came to them, it was with a message. But the way he communicated, like I said, it was unlike the communication that the Corinthians were, that the Corinthians uh, had valued in that, in this culture. The people of Corinth, they gave their attention to the really skilled speakers, the orators. These are the, the, the men and women who made their point with clever speech. They could move their audiences emotionally, perhaps. They were able to engage their intellects and imaginations. These were really impressive people. These are people that you would want to listen to. And Paul says, this is not what I came to you with. I didn't come to you with lofty speech. And he he gives a reason why. The reason why he doesn't do this is because it draws attention to, to the speaker rather than the message. Look at verse 2. This is what Paul says. This is my reason for speaking simply. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He didn't want the style of his speech to detract from the substance of the message. He understood that he had to concentrate on, on one thing only, Jesus Christ and him crucified. He didn't want anything to get in the way of the message. Have you ever listened to a really great speaker, perhaps even a really good pastor, and you went, wow, that guy is so good. I've done that all the time. When I'm at the gym, I listen to podcasts, and I listen to really good preachers. And here's a confession I have to make to you, that sometimes I listen to preachers for the entertainment value, because they're such good speakers, 
And I go, wow, how did they come up with that illustration? How were they able to connect the dots that way? They are so smart. I want to be like them. Have you ever thought that? Now, I'm not, I don't want to say that what they're doing, what, what, that, that these preachers, that they shouldn't uh, strive to be excellent in their preacher. Every, everyone who comes and to, in front of a message, or in front of an a audience, they should strive to be excellent in what they speak and how they speak. But they shouldn't try to be so clever that the hearers are more impressed with them than they are with the message, specifically in the church context. We don't want people to be more impressed with the teacher than they are with who God is. So this is the passage that I've been thinking about for a few weeks. And over the weeks I've been thinking about, how does this look at IGC? What does this passage have to say about what we do as a church? How does this affect our ministry at the church? Pay attention closely to what Paul writes in this passage because it's so easy to miss the point of this passage. As I was reading it, I, I had to read through it a bunch of times until it hit me. Wait a minute. Paul is saying there's one thing that we need to focus on. It's so easy to miss the point of this passage if you're thinking strictly in terms of ministry. Yes, this passage is about ministry, but more importantly, this is about a ministry that's centered on the person of Jesus. Jesus is not a set of beliefs. Jesus is not an abstract idea. Jesus is a person that we have to relate to. Jesus is a person who confronts us. So we can talk about ministry, but before we can talk about ministry, we have to know Jesus. And this is why Paul includes verse 2. Have you ever noticed that if you've been involved in the church world long enough, it's not that difficult to talk about ministry? Because talking about ministry is easy compared to talking about Jesus, is it not? We can keep Jesus at arm's length if we can talk about what the church is doing right or wrong. We can talk about Jesus as a subject and not let him disturb our lives. We can even speak theoretically about how Jesus deals with our sins. But we don't let him confront us about our own sins. If this is true, do you understand that we can play the church game and never really know who Jesus is? This is why Jesus says in Matthew 7, I think one of the most terrifying passages in the Bible. Jesus speaking, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And do you get what's being said here by Jesus, that we can do amazing things in this church, we can draw people into this place, we can keep it running, we can even speak biblical truth, and we can do this all without knowing Jesus. In other words, we can miss the entire point. And Paul, he says here, he decides to know nothing but Jesus. He's saying that he's resolved that everything he speaks of would be, would be centered on Jesus alone. 
For I decided to know nothing, nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So what matters to us as a church? What matters is not that we have a great meeting space, although I would love to have our own building one day. What matters is not that we have the best worship music, even though I think Nate and his team do an amazing job. What matters is not that we have the most competent staff or volunteers, even though I'm amazed at what we can do together. What matters more than anything is Jesus, is that we know Jesus. If we want a ministry to last, if we want a ministry that will bear good fruit, it has to be rooted in the knowledge of the true Jesus the crucified Jesus. So what does it mean to know nothing except Christ crucified? It means coming face to face with who this man Jesus really is. Not this sentimental version who affirms our preferences. Not the figurehead of a system of thoughts. But Jesus as a person. The same way that you might engage your spouse or a friend Because Jesus is a real person. But he's not just that. Jesus is the creator of the universe. He's very God of very God, our creeds say. Jesus was God before there was time. He he rules over all creation as king. And yet he condescended to become a man to walk the same earth that we walk right now. Jesus subjected himself to the same pains and limitations and suffering that you and I go through. He was killed on a cross for our sins. And this is important for us to know that when we say that we want to know Christ crucified, we have to look at Jesus through the lens of the cross, through the lens of his crucifixion. Why did Jesus have to be crucified? Because of my sin and your sin. We have to know that our sins grieve him, that there are things that we do that, that dishonor him. To, be, to know Jesus is to be confronted by the one who hates the sin in your life. Do you remember what Jesus says? He says, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus says, be crucified. Be crucified with me. This is how you know him. You cannot know Jesus without sacrifice and suffering. You cannot know Jesus without sacrifice or suffering. You can go to church without sacrifice or suffering. You can be part of a community. You can read Christian books. You can get a head knowledge of this man, Jesus Christ. But you cannot know Christ without sacrifice and suffering. And we have to know Jesus as the resurrected Savior. He rules over everything and He rules over us and we have to submit to His rule. And He will lead us if we know Him And he leads us as a good shepherd, John 10. He protects us. He loves us. He's full of grace. He's full of truth. He's full of mercy. He's full of love for people like you and me. Now, do we know him? Do we really know him? Are we attentive to what he says to us through his word? If we don't know him, maybe how often do you you read this book? Are you attentive to His spirits? Do you speak to Him in prayer? 
this may not be something that we think of regularly. And just for the next few minutes, I'm going to do something a little bit different. I want to give us just a few minutes just for us to think about this. Um, Do we really know Christ? And I'm going to have just two, three, four minutes of, of us just in silence. Maybe we can... If, if you don't know Jesus, ask him to reveal himself to you. If you don't have any desire for Jesus, just pray this. Pray, I don't have any desire to want you, but give me a desire to desire you. Or maybe it's, if, if, you're, if you're like me, you've been in this church environment for so long, uh, you forget why you do what you do. And it could just be a prayer of repentance saying, Jesus, I'm so sorry I've forgotten you turn my eyes to you again so just a few minutes i'm not i'm not this isn't a way for us to try to rile ourselves up emotionally it's this is not a way for us to get to feel good or bad this is not a time for us just to contemplate whether or not he exists but uh, let's 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 say that maybe he does exist maybe he really is who he says he is and just Consider, meditate. Do I really know Jesus? Do I really, really know Jesus? But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes from faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him, that I may know Him, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and share, and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, 
I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Can this be our prayer? That we would desire Christ so much that we're willing to suffer. That if, if Christ were on the cross, we'd say, Jesus, I would go on the cross just to be with you, just to know you. This is what we were created for, to know our Creator Jesus, crucified. This is what we exist. This is why we exist. Jesus. 
So this is our highest priority. Priority is to know the crucified Jesus. And this is what's going to sustain us as individuals. This is what's going to sustain your belief, is knowing Jesus. This is what's going to sustain the ministry of this church. And let's consider, what is the metric by which we measure the success of IGC? Not how many members that we add to our member role, not how many volunteers we can get, not how our finances are doing, even though these are things we should all strive for. But if we don't know and follow Jesus, if we're not helping each other know and follow Jesus, then we have failed as a church. And I've thought about this. If we could just shut the doors of this church, if we're not doing what we're supposed to do, I'm okay with losing my job if it means that you can go to another church where you can know Jesus. And may God shut the doors of this church if we're not a people that want to know Jesus more than anything. Why do we exist? Why are we here if not for Jesus? Our second point, Paul says... In verses 3 and 4, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. Now, Paul, he wasn't some scared, unskilled communicator. He wasn't uncomfortable with public speaking. If we look at the book of Acts, he, he demonstrates he can communicate clearly and powerfully. But as we look at Acts chapter 18, this gives us some understanding of the context of what Paul is speaking about. When he first encountered the Corinthians, he was literally fearful and physically weak. There was heavy opposition against him as he taught. There was physical violence threatened against him. He watched one of his coworkers being beaten for preaching the gospel. And you can imagine just the physical and emotional toll this might take on Paul. And yet he continues to do what God calls him to do. He preached the word of the cross to the church. And he didn't employ, like I said, the rhetorical devices that the Corinthians were used to because he wanted the message to be clear. He wanted the message to be clear. And what do these verses mean for us? Number one, that our own weaknesses and fears are not reasons for us to stop doing gospel work. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul writes this, We have this treasure in jars of clay, Literally, jars that are about to break, they're brittle. If you, if you crack them, the whole thing's going to fall apart. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. In 2 Corinthians 12, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
And this is how God works. He doesn't use the hundred most influential people in the issue of time. He uses people that don't have it all together to achieve his purposes. God uses weak people to show the world his strength. And isn't this how God showed his strength to the world through the cross? It looked like Jesus had been defeated, right? For two days, his followers despaired because they thought that this was the end of Jesus and the movement that he began. And then what? Three days later, Jesus overcame death. What seemed like weakness and defeat was just a platform to show how powerful he really is. So how does this apply to us very immediately? If we know Jesus, if we're attentive to his spirit, then we can be going through the most awful seasons of our life and we can still speak truth. In fact, and it's neat how this works, suffering and weakness gives us a platform to preach and speak all the more powerfully. For those of us who can come up with reasons not to speak up, I hope this is an encouragement for us to be open about what we're going through. Some of us are shy. Some of us don't think that we're articulate. Some of us don't feel knowledgeable enough. But if the Spirit is in you, and if you know Jesus, you have something to say. And who better to speak of the faithfulness and mercy of God than the one who's being crushed by worry? Who better to speak of the comfort of the Holy Spirit than the one who turns to him in desperation when they're drowning in loneliness and sorrow? Who better to speak of the sufficiency of Jesus than the one who is honest about his fights against sin and temptation? Aren't these the type of people you want to listen to? If we want to hear firsthand about the greatness of God, then talk to the people sitting next to you not just those who are paid to do it. The power of God frees us to be weak. There's such freedom in knowing, I can just admit, I'm a mess. The second thing that these verses tell us is that we need not be afraid to speak the truth. Paul, he, he looks at the message he's given, this testimony of God, and he understands that it sounds strange. It sounds foolish to the world. There might be a tendency to dilute it, so it's not so offensive. Maybe as we tell people about what we believe, we might, we might want to water it down. We might want to be not clear about the sinfulness of man. Or maybe we, we want to kind of hide the reality of God's judgment against sin or the exclusive claims of Jesus. Or maybe we just don't speak with urgency. But Paul knows he can't do this. This is a message from God. Paul knows he can't do this. D.A. Carson, commenting on this passage, says this, God has taken action, and the good news is announced. It is proclaimed, God is not negotiating. He is both announcing and confronting. So it's our responsibility to say what God wants us to say. So we do it with simplicity and with clarity. Now, this doesn't excuse us from doing the hard work of for me specifically, of studying God's word and using my imagination to communicate it well. It doesn't mean that we as a church, we don't try to contextualize a message so our culture understands it. But we need to faithfully tell the world and each other with clarity 
exactly what God has communicated to us through his word. So one more thing before we move on to our final points. Look at the second half of verse 4. Paul says, but in the demonstration of power, this is why he went to the Corinthians the way he did. We'll be looking more at the work of the Holy Spirit in the coming weeks. So I'm just going to touch on this very, very briefly, but I want to mention it. It's actually, I'm just going to put two thoughts in front of you. Number one, the first thought, if the Spirit of God is working, if the Spirit of God is really working in this church, then we don't have to try so hard to get people to respond a certain way. We don't have to stress out and spend 90% of our energy trying to figure out, you know, how, how do we put the service together? What type of program should we have? Those are so important, but we shouldn't give all our anxiety toward those things if the Spirit of God really is working. On the flip side, if the Spirit of God isn't working, it doesn't matter how hard we try, it doesn't matter how well we run our gatherings, nothing meaningful will happen if the Spirit of God is not here. So may Indelible Grace Church be a place that not only believes in the supernatural, but relies completely on the supernatural. And may it be undeniable that this invisible God is working at IGC. Our final point, the power of God. So, I put a lot in front of you. It's a lot to think about. And our work as Jesus followers and truth tellers and church members, it seems like so much. But look at verse 5. Paul says, So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. If you've been paying attention to news in the evangelical world recently, you might have heard of some really prominent pastors and leaders in the church. They've publicly renounced their faith. Um, Or if it's not that, um, pastors just within the past year or two, really well-known pastors, I have their books on my bookshelf. These pastors have fallen into scandalous sin. This is what happens in the church world. This is what happens in the evangelical world, at least. Or maybe it's something less explosive, but it's still jarring. Maybe we find out that our leaders are not as nice or kind as we thought they were. Or maybe as we get to know them better, their flaws become really apparent to us. Or, or they say something, I might say something that really upsets you. And when, when these things happen, it's so easy, easy to get discouraged. There's, there's always stories of the fallout. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? You hear that this, this leader, this pastor, whatever, fill in the blank, they've done this and they've left the faith. And it's so discouraging. The fallout is that there are men and women, they're, 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 the foundations of their faith are shaken. They distance, them, distance themselves from the communities that they used to be part of. They, some might stop going to church altogether. And, and some even renounce the faith themselves because they were following someone who renounced the faith. Now, this is nothing new. Paul knows the tendency that we all have to to attach ourselves to certain figures and leaders. This is why he writes in verse 5 that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men. But we need our faith to rest somewhere. You can't sustain belief on your own. You can't just try to convince yourself that you're right. People can speak the truth. People can exemplify the truth, but they are not the truth. 
Don't put your faith in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. John Murray, he writes this, he says this about what real faith is. Faith is a whole-souled movement of the person in entrustment to Christ. Faith is, itself is a whole-souled movement of the person in entrustment to Christ. It's okay to look to other believers to help us and support us and to encourage us. We can look to other believers as examples, but don't expect them to live up to your standards all the time. Don't be surprised if they fall because there's a very good chance that over the course of your life, you're going to have someone in your life that's going to disappoint you, someone that's going to let you down. But your faith has to move towards something. And I think what this passage is telling us is this, that we should entrust the entirety of our person, our heart, soul, mind, and strength to Christ. Paul says, rest in the power of God. The Greek word for power in this verse, in verse 5, is dunamis. Dunamis, it's the same word we get uh, the word dynamite from. Explosive power. And this is the same word that we, that, the same word that Paul uses to describe the gospel in Romans 16. Do you remember this verse? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power, the dunamis of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel is the power of God and the gospel is the only place where we can find rest. The gospel is an invitation for the weak and the fearful and the trembling just like Paul, just like you and me. Jesus says, Come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you what? Rest. The gospel is not an invitation for you to try harder. It's not an invitation for you to become the best version of yourself. It's an invitation to rest in what Christ has done. This is what living by faith is. In order for us to rest our in order for us to rest our souls and our ministries. In order for us to find rest for our souls and for our ministries. We need to rest on the gospel. We have to admit our own failed attempts to find peace and rest apart from our Creator. We have to admit that there are, we are not as strong as we think we are, nor are we as good as we think we are before the holy and perfect God. The gospel tells us that Jesus lived the perfect life on our behalf and died the death that we deserve so that we could be completely free from the consequences of our offenses toward God. This is the gospel. And now when Jesus, when God looks at us, he doesn't see competent, inspiring, hardworking, articulate, smart, winsome people. He sees a perfection of Jesus, which is a trillion times better. And Indelible Grace Church, we can rest in this, that our identity is settled. We don't need to be cool or innovative. All Christ is for us is enough. We can rest in that, the gospel, and our church can rest in that. Will you pray with me? Lord, give us Jesus, the crucified Jesus, who sends us out on mission. But this mission is not a work that we could have organized or planned. We don't have the strength to do it. But you give us a strength, God. I pray that your people would turn toward you. I pray that this place, this church, with all our weaknesses and flaws, can say, I'm so grateful for my weaknesses and flaws because it shows the power of God. So, 
God, be powerful in this place. Be powerful in Castro Valley. Would you use us? Would you use us, God, for your glory? Will you turn our, will you turn our eyes to Jesus? We pray this in his name. Amen.